Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Cloud Spotting. This is a rather unusual opening, as uh, much like an amuse bouche, I'm just the entree to the main event. Uh, but why the alternate intro, I hear you say? Well, okay, maybe you're not saying it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So it's with a heavy heart, I have to let you know that I'm going to be leaving the Cloud Spotting family. Indeed, I'm going to be leaving the rack. After five and a half amazing years working with some of the most talented people in the industry, it's it's finally come time for me to move on to my next challenge. But the show must go on, and we have a fantastic replacement for you in the form of one of our highly experienced cloud solution architects who's worked with Sinai for many years. This new host will also do his part in increasing the percentage of Americans on the show as well. But uh, enough about that. I'll let him introduce himself. So, for once, I'll keep it brief, and I'll just say it's been a pleasure and an honor sharing the knowledge and skills of our rackers with you all since Carolina, Sai, and I started the show way back in February 2018. Thank you all for the brilliant feedback and comments. Thank you for your engagement, and most importantly, thank you for listening. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cloud Spotting. This is Sai, and we have a new host today, Scotty. Hello. Hey, Scotty, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, yeah, my name is Scott Pankinen. Uh, I'll be jumping in as a host on Cloud Spotting. Very excited to be here. Uh, I've been with Rackspace for a similar amount of time, an AWS specialist solutions architect. And today we're going to be talking about the absolutely exciting, riveting, and otherwise interesting subject of ITIL. So we're going to look at that from the perspective of where it's come from and how it fits into kind of the brave new world, modern IT. And to kind of take us on this journey today, we have one of our experts in the field, Paul. Yep. Hey, Paul. Hi, guys. Hey, do you want to give us a quick introduction of yourself, please? Uh, yeah, certainly. Well, my name's Paul Jackson. Um, I'm what we term as a solution director here at Rackspace, uh, which involves getting involved with talking to customers about strategy, IT development, IT transformation, modernization plans, data center optimization, and how you transition from current mode of operations into future mode of operations, really, and helping define those strategies, roadmaps, and processes that help you get from A to B. Um, you know, that's a prime thing. Uh, and one of the key areas of that, obviously, is how you manage those services moving forward once you've achieved your migration goals. Um, my background around that is, is long and spotted. Uh, I've been in the industry now oof, over 30 odd years, man and boy, so to speak, um, right back from the uh, mid 80s right through to now, working in both service delivery, service design, service operations. I've worked on contact centers. I've worked on call desks. I've worked in uh, second, third and fourth line support organizations, done software development, run architecture teams. Done. I've done pretty much most of the roles that you can do in an operational environment to help deliver things Amazing. for customers. And I've been working with ITIL since it first came out, probably back in the ooh, mid 80s, when the very first iteration of it came out from the British government. So yeah, it's been around almost as long as I have. We've grown up together and we've got the warts and the pain and the suffering, the scars <laughs> that go with it. Yeah. Fantastic. And should I also mention one of the first ITIL masters? Uh, yeah, so uh, I suppose we could call it a close to claim to fame. Um, apparently, I was the first person globally to qualify ITIL version 3 through the ITIL version 3 route. So I didn't do a conversion from version 2 to version 3. Amazing. I did all the version 3 exams and That's sat through all that. So, yeah. It's a, well, it's a claim to fame, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, an element of notoriety, perhaps. I'm not sure, but there you go. 
infamy. <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. It's, no, it's, it's, it's great to have so, you here, Paul. Yeah, cool. Thank you. It's good. It's good to be here, actually. So jumping into ITIL, um, it's going back to the 80s. Take us to how it came into being and why, uh, and then how it's grown up uh, within the IT world. Um, so if you think back to the mid 80s, IT itself was very much, you know, leading the charge in terms of making people work differently, understand how things operate differently, pace of change was accelerating, new servers, new ideas, managed hosting services, getting people to buy things in, understanding how these things operated. And at that point, the British government realized that it was running a number of RFPs and, and, and projects to start using more and more technology. As part of that, they were starting to start to get feedback from multiple organizations and proposals, and all the language was different. It was hard to work out what was going on. So they sort of came up with a concept of we need to create a standardized set of language that we can use across all our projects so that everyone has a set of terms and definitions and ideas and processes that we can standardize on to help us manage and understand how that technology is going to be delivered, how we can get the most value from it, as it was done back then at the time, how we can make it operate, how we can drive it, how we can deliver it, and how we can manage it. Um, so they created a set of books with um, over about 10 years from the mid 80s through to the early 90s, uh, based in a various different things, service operations, service design, service transition, um, that kind of approach about how you do different areas of IT and how we do things. And that was both born out of learning from their own experiences, and their own pain points and the failures of delivering projects over the time. That's that's morphed now and grown, obviously, as I said, pace of change of technology. The way people adopt technology and drive technology and manage technology has changed considerably over the years. So from that first iteration, which was very much a framework guidance and a language definition kind of thing. So it's a case of if we say incident, you say incident, we all know we're talking about the same thing. So the definitions are standard. So yeah, you're not having one person saying an incident is this, another person an incident is that. When you do contractual <laughs> language, you've got different, you've got a clash. So yeah. yeah, exactly. We don't want people pointing fingers and saying that's not mine. That's not what you say incident is not my incident. That's normal. Yeah. That's actually a great segue. What are the essential concepts? I mean, the big bullet points and incidents and events. I and mean, what are the specific concepts that we work with within ITIL? Yeah, I mean, if you look at ITIL, it's built on a series of predetermined uh, sort of ideas or concepts. Things like you, you asked there, some of the baseline ones. So you've got things like events, incidents, problems, change. Uh, and uh, request for change and other bits and pieces and how that's managed and handled. So, for example, if we take a, an incident, which, if I remember rightly, is defined as an unplanned interruption or reduction in the quality of an IT service. Right. It's going bump in the night. Yeah, exactly, a bump <laughs> in the night. Something, something that's happened that's caused a problem, which has either caused the system to fail, slow down, or reducing performance in some way. Um, that's underpinned by an event, which is the thing that occurred. And a one incident can be multiple events over a period of time. It can be a stack of the same event, or it can be iterations of different events combined to create the failure or the, or the performance. And once you've solved that, and that's the thing that you're looking for your service desk to solve quickly. So you fix the incident, get the service running, do that one. If that iterates or happens a lot, that's when it becomes a problem. So a problem right. is the bit then that's escalated and given to a problem manager or a problem team to solve the problem so that the incident and the events never happen again. And that could be simple as simple as changing some code, redeploying a thing, or I might have to go back and do a complete redevelopment or redesign of an infrastructure to cope with new load or things have changed over time. So, so. so if, I, if I understand correctly, an incident may not exactly be a problem until it 
resolves into a problem. Yeah. And internet has to repeat to become a problem. Uh, yes and no. So an incident can be a one-off thing that causes a catastrophic failure. So something can go bang, flashes up an incident, becomes a problem, it gets fixed immediately. Or it can be a known problem or a known incident that occurs regularly, like um, a Java overflow, for example. So Java, your JVM engine falls up, right. you need to restart. That could be something that you can live with as an, op- as an organization. And you know that at 12 o'clock every night, you do an automatic restart of your JVMs, bang, and that's you done. So you identified the incident, got the cause, got the problem, identified a workaround for the problem. So that's what a problem is, is identifying a workaround or a fix to resolve the incident on a more permanent basis. Might not be the most elegant way to do it. It might not be the most effective way to do it. But in many instances, it's an efficient way of doing it, which means you don't have to go and redesign your applications or your code or your infrastructure. So the problem gotcha. thing is is making the most effective way, in effect, in essence, to resolve the incidents or stuff like that. And that's part of what ITIL is all about, is creating that mindset and that approach to understanding that you can do things in a certain way and living with the thing. So ITIL itself is a guide guide framework approach to doing things with a recommended set of best practices and then you adopt those best practices to the way your organization works to your own risk appetite and risk profile operational needs and financial outcomes that you're looking for as a business so amazing um, yeah. amazing and I, I guess this is where probably the the service management piece comes in because it it helps apply management practices to the those guideline principles effectively you could say yes Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. So if you think ITIL, ITIL service management, ISO 20,000, COBIT, all those, the Microsoft's framework, they're all very much of a, of, a, of a genre of service management capabilities and tool sets that you can deploy within your organization. And many of them cross-pollinize and cross-fertilize with each other. So you can run one, build it with another one. You can add bits in from different places. So you can build an ecosystem of service management capability in your organization that takes from various bits and pieces. And they're all very similar in the way they approach things and the way about quality in IT, so, um, yeah. documentation, management, all that kind of stuff. So you can pick and cherry pick those. ITIL is probably worldwide the biggest because it's gotcha. fairly easy to follow. It's a framework. It's um, thing you can get easy training, as you know, the foundation level course up to the master level or the man, um, expert level or whatever it is these days um, is is very much a, it's very easy to do. It's a one day, two day course with an exam. You get the foundation, do that for everyone in your organization, and they all understand the language, the processes, the principles, and the needs that you have to have within IT to deliver business value. So that's a really good point there, and I think you mentioned compliance. You mentioned ISO in between there. So. The way I see it, compliance is something that you need to have when you're doing something that requires compliance, right? Like, for example, if, you, if you're handling data, customer data, you need that ISO and data protection compliance. But ITIL and ITSM is not something that you need to have, but rather everyone does. So does it, does it matter the organization size or what the org does that reflects ITIL? No. So you're right. So compliance is, if you think of regulatory compliance as in something that's laid down by a regulatory body, you know, you must have this, you must have that, then your IT services must comply with that. To get that and become part of that, uh, ITIL actually helps you achieve those processes because it creates the the framework you need to build the process to achieve that. Right. Um, it's not necessarily thing. ITIL is not prescriptive in terms of you must have it. Most organizations use the language, the terminology, but might not specifically say you must be ITIL compliant in some way. Um, most people say, are you aligned with ITIL principles? 
So yes, we use a service desk, we use the terminology, we understand the change management process, we understand how things operate. So you're looking to build that kind of approach, whereas a, a regulatory thing is a very specific set of criteria that you must mm. achieve to meet the needs and wants of that regulation, that regulatory body. Now, as again, ITIL supports and underpins that. So if you're having to be, for example, GDPR and data protection, part of your processes must be how you handle that data. So you must have as part of your ITIL framework and your operational capability, a data lifecycle process, how you manage the data, how it's, how it's encrypted, how it's managed, how it's done that. It doesn't necessarily need to be a specific um, thing within ITIL, but it forms part of that operational governance and maturity that you need to have. Right if that makes sense. So you're always leveraging things. And that's things like the change process, for example, understanding that any change you do has an impact. What is that impact? Is it going to affect what the regulatory body does? Do we need to change that? Where do we get the approvals and the permissions from to these changes? Do they need to be pre-vetted by third parties? Can we just do it internally? So you, when you're looking to deliver things and services, it's all about understanding your touch points and your pain points. Okay, and that actually segues quite nicely into the next thing. We've talked about kind of where it came from, uh, mm -hmm. a bit about what it is, how it fits within kind of an organization. Now we look at more modern IT styles, uh, DevOps, uh, more agile functionality, <laughs> uh, function roles. Um, how does ITIL fit in, in kind of the new world? Yeah, I mean, we, we go back to the history of it. I said ITIL's changed over time, as I say. So the initial version was just a series of books. Then there was version two, which was a bit more, uh, bit more fat, uh, uh, built out and, and understood. Then ITIL V3 was much more it's broken down into specialist areas. So you have the operation side, you've got a practitioner side, and you've got an expert side to that. So different levels of strategy and financial operations. ITIL V4 is very similar to ITIL V3 the new version, but it focuses rather than just on service. Now it's focused much more on value creation, definition and delivery. So there's a lot of people who will be wondering around saying, ITIL is dead. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not. That's it's, um, it's a very odd view of the world to think that something that makes your services stable, generates value and revenue, keeps your business running, then that is dead because people want to publish things faster into production. One of the reasons ITIL came about with some of its structure was to stop people doing things live into production, causing outages, downtime and failures when your customers are looking at, at services that you do, which cost the business revenue. Now, the modern world where you fail fast, fail often, iterate, change quickly has brought back an element of that potential failure of a service when it's customer facing. So if you're looking to do that, you just modify your ITIL processes and those things to fit into a DevOps world by putting a manual a manual step in somewhere to say, is this code valid? Have we got, are we meeting our own criteria for um, one major and one minor to get to the next step? Has that been fixed when it goes into production? So all you're doing is putting a either a manual check or an automated check based on a manual process in that DevOps pipeline to make sure that as your thing progresses from development to test to pre-prod, to production and a simplified version that you're removing all the issues so when it goes into production um, you're you're promoting a, a bit of code that is actually stable and working so you're still using the ITIL principles of change control management release control you're just modifying it to fit in with an, an agile workflow and that obviously in many cases that means changing your thought process slightly with internally within the organization to say yeah we can use tooling with automation we've got coding checks that can help us get to this point and at this point, we either do a manual go, no-go, depending on the complexity of the change, 
Mm. Or if it's just a patch, for example, then we can just run a patch at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon because we know it can be done without affecting service or three o'clock in the morning. However, you want to structure it to suit your business needs. And that's a critical point, isn't it? Because if you think about it now with cloud, with, with a distributed dev team, where you've got different dev teams sitting in different geographic regions, different time zones, it's even more important to have a structured process practice in terms of how do you release stuff? How do you deploy stuff? How do you push stuff into the, into the cloud? Because be, it could be someone working in the middle of the night for where the, the customer base is and then push something out. And you wouldn't even know till the customer wakes up in the morning and you've already lost hours between then, between then and now. That's where the automated testing comes in. So if you're in a continuous delivery process, you're always publishing code. That code is getting tested as it's being published. Yep. The commits are very small, they're very tight. Uh, and then when you're looking at a larger release, you would have that manual step. Okay, this is done, it's been blessed, publish it. And yeah. you always have your rollback plans as part of your, as your development. Yeah. So if something does go bump from a code deploy, you have an immediate path back to the same place. Yeah, and that's exactly it. So that's that, that's that thing about what's the, what's the criteria for, for release into a production environment? What's the criteria when it gets through that process? So if it's something that, yeah, we've done the full test, the code's running fine, um, we're happy with it to go, you can automate that publishing process and publish it into production. But then you also have the change then in terms of immutable production platforms. Yeah. Obviously, security now is a massive risk, uh, mass, a massive concern, massive risk now. Mass, security massive is, risk is essential. Concern. It's essential <laughs> these days. Um, uh, if you're not putting security in your environments, you're doing fundamentally doing something wrong and you're going to leave yourself up to all sorts of trouble. We know that you know, no ransomware attacks, yeah, um, you know, and all the bits and pieces that happen these days. Now, there's a, there's a big drive towards making your production environment immutable. You've got the, 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 the capability of understanding what's in production and promoting those changes. From a security perspective, that allows you to understand what's happened, what's gone on, and it allows you to change, change your environment to suit by isolating bad code, letting yourself do your active threat hunting, for example, because mm -hmm. you can look at the environment and see what's changed. You can understand exactly what's in there, where you think that. It also helps with compliance, because if your compliance, if your regulator knows that your production environment never gets changed, it makes your compliance thing a lot easier to 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 work on. Because you can say the changes are done here and here, everything that's changed is then promoted, and everything that's there is removed. That's a massive, massive thing from a regulatory perspective, and that it helps drive that stability. Now we talked about things like stability and why why you need that. It drives value, both for your organization. It helps protect the revenue streams that you may have. And it also allows you to make sure your systems are available globally. The corollary to that is it also re re removes and resolves brand damage. So you've all seen it. If we take, for example, some of the big outages that we've all seen over the years, the big websites, and when it, something happens, massive amounts of load, the website goes down, customers go and say the experience is rubbish. Part of the whole idea around ITIL was to stop those things happening by engaging the business sooner, making sure that load capability was there, that they understood what that was going to be, how you could build the profile, how you could scale the systems to cope with that. And then also you don't get the corollary of band damage, which can be either both you know, share price affecting, but it's also there's an intangible to it in terms of the way people perceive your brand. So the whole thing about just publishing things live into production and not caring because ITIL's dead Actually, the ITIL thing is not just protecting your environment. It's also working to protect your business. And that's the spin with ITIL v4, is it now understands that we're looking at that value creation, not just from an internal IT perspective, but from a customer's journey perspective. 
So it's taking the model away from just looking at, you know, the standard business, the standard services, the standard things that we all do is an SLA. Because let's face it, we all know what SLAs mean. You know, that's how you measure the process. That's how you measure the the performance of the utilization rates on a box. Today's IT services and the way that the IT before is going is to get people to think more around experience, supporting um, customer outcomes and supporting the value you get for the organization. So we're changing from that very prescriptive, very rigid framework of understanding this box, uptime, it's this, it's availability, is that, um, doing that. So there's a concept called the watermelon effect. Oh, yeah. Which was very much a case of all your SLAs can be green, but your service can be not performing. It can be rubbish because all the individual elements of the hardware are up and performing and working, but the actual service itself is not being delivered to the customer. That's super interesting. I mean, it's it sounds very odd because if you think about it, everything is built upon the services. If the services are working, well, yeah. everything should be working. Yeah, but services, so traditional SLAs measure availability. So is go. the box there? Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily measure what's going on on that box. So is that box running 100%? Is it maxed out? Very traditional ones. Now we've morphed the stuff. We've got more intelligent in the terms of whether we manage those bits and pieces. So we now look at utilization, memory utilization, swaps, uh, and that kind of stuff, and how, we, and how we do that to keep the performance. But there's still no measure, true measure, of a customer experience. So SLAs have modified, but they're still talking about process. Right. Whereas looking at an experience, he's talking about the value that the customer receives from that um, experience, that journey, and then the value the organization gets from a customer going through that journey. So you're trying to take your thinking and approach one step up again into the business world. Uh, and that's where the new version of ITIL has, is trying to change that process and that engagement model to say um, it's not just about infrastructure anymore. Got it. Uh, we okay. know. Yeah. Sorry. You going to say something? No, so uh, that makes sense. I think it, it, there's a certain element of uh, U, UX and UI that comes into play, right? It's not just what the servers are doing, but what the actual users are seeing. What benefit they're getting from the, the actual service. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we're looking at, we all know now in the cloud world, uh, you've got this whizzy technology. It's agile. It's fast. You can scale up, scale down, scale left, scale right. Do what you want. Throw stuff in. Who cares? It's all there. It's all cheap. It's all winnable. <laughs> it's all good fun. When you live in that world, you know that the marketing hype and the reality can be a, a hundred miles apart in terms of actual delivery to achieve that flexibility and that utopia of cloud service that they're all selling. Um, one of the key elements, obviously, when you're talking to people about it, I, I say ITIL was predominantly focused before on infrastructure and availability and management and service and control. It's now gone much more around in the, the world of cloud of thinking about value, as I was saying, and that's looking at things like uh, it's got four dimensions. And we do this when we talk to people about cloud. It's people and process, so it's people and organizational change. Um, it's the uh, technology, information and data, how you handle, manage, control that and how you adopt it. It's about your partners and suppliers. So you've got to build the ecosystem around you of people who understand what you want to do how you're going to supply that, how you're going to deliver it, and how you're going to manage it. And then you've got your internal value streams and processes. So this is the internal mechanisms, the change that need to run across your business, not just within IT, to make cloud a success. So it's looking at four key four key pillars. Most organizations look at, but quite, quite a few of those will only look at two bits. For example, technology and people. We need to train our people to be valid on this. That's right. great. But the business also, in the cloud world, the business also needs to change its value and its processes in terms of how you procure IT. 
because you're no longer a capex model with a fixed infrastructure that grows in leaps and bounds and forklift upgrades. You're now talking about an agile thing that can scale up and down automatically, depending how you built your systems, how you control that cost. Yeah. How do you procure these new services? How do you make sure that next thing that you buy in is compatible with already got? So your finance, your financial processes of procurement of IT need to modernize and change, which then drives into your legal things because then you have to have different legal agreements and frameworks with the suppliers to cope with that fast iterative pace of change, how we do updates, how we do changes, how we do this. So nothing in um, the IT world anymore works in isolation. And mm -hmm. ITIL V4's great, great sort of drive and change of thinking is that um, you have to change the organization, change the culture, the approach, the mindset of everybody, not just IT. So you're not talking about just IT anymore. You're looking at driving it into the organization, changing it. And once you get that kind of model right, it makes your future operating models and the targets you want to get to and achieving the outcomes the business is looking for um, a, much, a much easier and more tangible thing to do because you can actually track your change and understand where you're going. Amazing. Did that make any sense? <laughs> no, definitely. So it's the IT world uh, development operations has been moving to that more agile model. So ITIL before is actually bringing the wider organization into kind of that same paradigm. Exactly, yes. So before there was always an element of integrating back into the business from just from procurement, understanding that it was tighter coupled to financial management of, the, of your operations, trying to optimize, especially in the virtualization world, was we've all come across people who've got um, VM sprawl. So, you know, the, the idea we could put a big, big chunk of architecture in with loads of resources and people could cherry pick in bits and pieces and build things out like that one. So in the good old days when that first happened, I remember working for a bank in the US and I was out there sitting with a guy and they needed to build some VMs. So they put some the VM thing in and they had to go through their normal change process to get four virtual machines built. So back in the old days, they were still very rigid in their thinking. And it took six weeks to, do, to build those four VMs because they had to go through approval, make sure the architecture thing. So they had the right principles in place, but it wasn't modified to a virtualized world at that point. Then, of course, people realized there's no point in having a virtual environment that allows us to do things quicker if we have to do six to eight weeks to do that. <laughs> one. So we shortened, they shortened that approval cycle. So that was the thing about modifying your ITIL processes to suit the environment and the way you want to work. Of course, then they went the other way and it became too easy for people to spin up VMs because it was like, well, we've got the box, we've got the thing, have at it. So you got the yeah. thing with the VM sprawl went that way. So your capacity and your demand management all sort of fell apart because no one knew what was happening from day to day. And of course, that's now bounced back off that. So it's come back into this more controlled, optimized environment, right-sizing, understanding what's running when, making sure that your, your, your development environments are separate from your operation environment so you can turn them off and save money as we move things up into cloud. So all, all these sort of concepts and principles that all come through from the original concepts of ITIL right the way through to now, and all it's doing now is modifying it to be how we, how we do agile, how we do fast, how we do agility, how we auto-scale, auto-heal environments. You know, the, the capabilities that the cloud platforms allow don't really work with the old ITIL way of thinking. So they're morphing in the way that we do that delivery and the, the concept of automation, automated recovery. That's your incident management process these days. You know, so we've got something, it happens, we know how to fix that, bang, we can iterate, it's a quick restart, it's done. All that's done automatically in the background. You might not even see mm. see a ticket until it's actually been resolved, depending on how quickly the systems move, how fast they spotted it, do that one, yeah. a ticket will pop up, say, this happened, we've done this, this one's resolved, it's gone, it's done. That's then, But that is where your problem management function really starts to come into its own at that point. Because that correlation engine, the understanding of the amount of times that incident or that failure has occurred, and it's been remediated, Actually, actually, there might be a fundamental thing we need to patch an operating system, for example, because mm -hmm. there's a the bug. 
that might be in one device, but suddenly it goes across 100 devices. But if you're automating the fix, you might not see that until you go to a correlation engine. It's pulling up the things, then you identify the problem. So all you're doing is changing the way that you come at approach right. or you approach something within an IT, ITSM world. And it's understanding the impact of that tooling, how that's going to affect your processes means that you understand how you have to change to be more effective and to stay where it is. So concept and the idea that ITIL is dead is rubbish. Um, all you have to do, again, the beauty of ITIL is it's designed to be modernized to suit your environment, to suit okay. your operational needs. It's not prescriptive. You have to do this. It has to be a week. It has to be that. It has to be that. The framework is you must have a change process. That change process must cover these small elements, an approval, a release, a test, production, go live, close, track your documentation. The concepts still stay the same, but nowadays yeah. it's done in a DevOps pipeline. So we build, we test. Yeah, we test again, we test again, we iterate, we do the bits pieces we need to do. We do the approval, we do release. The whole code base then gets copied away into, into whatever repository or stuff you've got. So you know exactly what the change did. You know exactly what it's done. The documentation is done. The principles and concepts are still there. All you're doing is changing the process to suit the way you operate now, if that makes sense. And that's all ITIL is. is modifying and thinking differently about the way you do things to achieve the goals that you want, but making sure you still have that uh, governance over the whole thing. So you, so you understand what's going on uh, and you understand exactly what where, where it is, exactly what's running live, that way you can do your right sizing. You can, you know, the, your customer success guys and your service guys that think can understand exactly what's going on in the environment. You've got your CMDB. That's still a critical part of everything because yep. that helps you foment, ferment and understand exactly where you are, what's changing, where you need to refresh things, how you need to do things. And it's not so much an infrastructure level anymore because you're buying the infrastructure from a cloud provider or a managed service partner. So your thinking's come up from infrastructure to software, to patching. So you think, right, my, this particular application, this software is five years old. There's two new versions, but we're going to wait for the next version because that's a software as a service version by the vendor. Then you have to work out how you do your migration plan and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it's understanding the, the, the strategy is looking forward to understand what your applications do. So we don't need to change it now because the business has a plan to go cloud first. The next version of the software isn't cloud first, but we can wait 12 months and then move to the cloud version of that software. So you're looking at your IT strategy, and that's part of the ITIL understanding of, of uh, building that IT strategy for the business. The ITIL strategic approach and understanding is still valid today. Uh, and, that, and that becomes the ITIL financial management piece is all tied into that. Um, same with ITIL service designs, it used to be. The, the new yeah. principles around that is understanding the different concepts and making them work for you now as you transition from current mode of operation to future mode of operation. That's super critical, right? I mean, the whole financial piece is extremely critical when you are talking about agile consumption of resources. Absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, yeah. we, we mentioned CMDB in between. It, it was easier to maintain a CMDB when you all you're doing is procuring once in five years uh, and you know exactly what servers they are. But in the age where you could sort of deploy servers in minutes, that CMDB has to keep up and keep agile in terms of forecasting as well what this could what this is going to cost. You almost track your resources as a service layer rather than individual instances. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's interesting you say that CMDs were easy to think. If CMDs were e CMDBs were easy, a lot of the issues that people have these days wouldn't be there because they're not um, monitoring, managing, and keeping a CMDB is a mm -hmm. fundamental part of being successful in this, but it's also one of the most difficult. Exactly, you say, because of changes, because of when do we retire, what's the life cycle of this application or this service, and are we following a full life cycle approach to its management? 
So concept to retirement, that's the life cycle of an application. When you do your service portfolio and you design for what that service looks like, it has to take in both sides. Most organizations have the bit where we want to do this. It's a concept, very small. That's the service. So they design something, then they deliver it, and then there's nothing that comes after. There's no end date. There's no what happens when it gets to this one. When does the refresh happen? How does it get paid for? What the charges, the budget just runs for the delivery, and then maybe the first three years of management. And then after that, it just goes into BAU where the, the IT department pays for those services and it's just consumed by the business. But there's very rarely a plan to retire, refactor, or repurpose those applications, those equipment in five mm-hmm. to six years. And that's a critical thing that people need to start thinking about now in a modern world and in a future world with multiple clouds. Yep. Um, understanding that at the moment, most people are going with a single cloud. Okay, yes. that's the target. We, we like AWS, we like Azure, we like GCP. It gives us exactly what we need now. Okay, great. What's going to happen in five years? Growth of data, <laughs> the amount of data that's growth. Where are you going to put your data? Are you sure you want to copy all your data up into a single platform? Because in five years' time, you could have petabytes and petabytes of data up there because it's cheap to store. But if then you, if something happens with that cloud provider and you have a falling out or they create a service in one of your applications stops working for a period of time while you work out and iterate, but it would work on another one. Transitioning that data out could actually bankrupt your company because of egress charges of moving data. Of course. So too many organizations, what we speak to on a daily basis, are only thinking about now. And one of the fundamental things is you need to future enable your thinking. Uh, so never use the term future proofing because it's total. We've all seen the pace of change. It's a, it's a tosh. What you have to do is enable your organization to adopt to the future as it happens. And that means not trying not to make decisions that tie you into a platform or a technology choice that's very difficult or potentially difficult in the future to get off. Um, as we talk about ITIL strategy. Part of it is understanding and thinking five years down the line. Mm. Uh, and in an IT perspective, you don't always know what's going to happen within a business. Um, you may be acquired. You may do an acquisition. You may merge with somebody. You may change. You may pivot and go in an entirely different direction. Uh, and become a different business doing different things. So the business strategy fundamentally drives the IT strategy, but the IT strategy fundamentally underpins the achievement of that business strategy. It becomes a continuous loop of iteration and cycle and support, uh, which is why the other bits of the business need to understand more about what's going on within the IT world. So this is why it's it's not just tin, spinny disks and blinky lights, but it's much more around service, customer value, and delivering that value both to the business and to your customers. Got it. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So basically what we're saying is ITIL does not change the way you do cloud. Actually, it's more pertinent to start using ITIL practices as you move more into the cloud because of the whole advent of DevOps and more agile way of working. Yeah. And and focus on experience level agreement, which is, by the way, the first time I'm hearing it actually is a phrase. Yes, it is. So an experience level agreement is a sort of spin-off from the concept of a, of a service value chain that they're talking yep. about within ITIL v4. But if you've ever going to come across uh, any application performance management tooling, where you're talking about customer journey and mapping a customer journey through your infrastructure. Yep. So in the, in the good old days, you'd have a database server with 15 databases on it. You'd have a middleware engine. You'd have maybe a message bus. You'd have some front-end services, whether that's a website or an internal app built in a, you know, a three-tier application and do that one. Someone would come in and do it, and you say, oh, this, the the system's running slow, you'd have no idea which part of that service was, if you understand. Mm-hmm. So when you go, it's just a screen, it's running slow, you don't know which part of the infrastructure is causing that slowdown. Is it network? Is the database, you know, got yeah. all these sessions full up? Is it just slow down? Is it 
as the, as the box reached 100% utilization or a 90% utilization, there's, the, there's a tail coming back in responses. So you didn't necessarily always know what the issue was. If you look at things from an application perspective, what you do is you map out a customer journey. So let's say, for example, you're a bank and you want to do a credit card application online. You map out the journey that the customer takes when they click on your website, go to credit cards, click apply, do that. And then you run it and you test it and you see what the average journey time is for a user to do something like that. And you create a baseline. Yep. That then becomes your performance baseline for that part of the service. You do that for multiple parts of your service within your website. And you have a customer journey map that tells you, okay, we're in, so the application bit works fine, but this bit here for mortgages has slowed down. All right, which bit is specific to mortgages, which is that, and it helps your operational staff and your business understand where your issues are, your pain points are, and you can solve that. And also tells you where your customers are, or where you're losing customers. And that's, that's really important, right? Because you're going back to the start, that's your key to diagnose where the problem is to avoid an incident. Uh, yes, yes, yes and no. But it also, because we're not talking now about just creating the incident, we're talking about making sure the customers still receive the value and the performance. Indeed. So when they start to see a slowdown, so we all know it, if you go onto a website and you click, it doesn't come up within, what is it, two seconds these days or less? You hit back, you've gone, you've gone to a different site. Customer, you know, Your customer attention is tiny because of speed of delivery, the fact that websites can be delivered so quickly. Back in the, what, uh, the, what 2005, 2010, people would wait up to seven to 10 seconds for a website to load because that was the way their brains had been trained over time to say that, you know, on average, because of broadband was just really getting started, web pages were still a little bit heavy and clunky. As that's moved now to time where broadband is huge, we've got lots of pipe space, we can let some bandwidth to download things. The development of websites has got much cleaner. There's less code lying around in it. They're much smarter. They're using frameworks and the delivery of modules. So you can build the page on the screen and then build down when people scroll. So the way that your load page loads is different. So everything, all these little techniques and things that people have done over the years have trained us to think that if a website doesn't load in a second and a half to two seconds, I'm not interested. I'll move on to the next one. Yeah. And this is the whole thing is you need to understand that journey and that perspective and how the customer is going to get value from your operation to deliver that. And if you don't understand from customer to data center, that whole journey, then you're not going to give them the experience they're expecting which means your business is going to get the value from that customer, if that makes sense. So if you look at that experience level agreement, going back to the credit card example, uh, a person goes to the bank's website, they click on credit card, they get an application form. They're yep. going to fill that form in. It's going to submit. That's happening at the website. Then it's going to probably go off and do a credit check, and yep. that's consuming a, a third-party service. Then when that comes back, that will go along with the application, and then it's going to go to an approval stage, so yep. potentially another third-party service, or at least another application. So that experience level agreement for the customer would be looking at that journey, how they're going through from application to approval or decision yeah. anyway. But you can almost look at different experience level agreements for the consuming services. So your yes, credit exactly. application will call a credit check and how yeah. that's working. And it yeah. will go to a decision phase, how that's working. So you have yeah. multiple levels of, of, of basically metrics here. Yeah. So in the good old days, we used to call that SLAs and OLAs, objective level agreements, where bits, individual parts of a service will be done with a specific supplier. And that one, the concept still stays, it's still exactly the same. Um, you know, we'd have an, you would still have an SLA from your third-party broker, a response time from a from a bid going in or a credit check, and that you know that could vary depending on load, could be, uh, and bits and pieces around that. So your 
internal IT still measuring a set of SLAs, but those SLAs are now more performance related as it goes back to the watermelon concept, as I said. So it's not a case of the server is up, but the the individual infrastructure elements are all up. The networks works, the server's working, things, but the service performance is poor. You're looking more around, is the service performing? Because let's face it, anyone who installs a single device now into a, into a specific thing isn't thinking about DIs and thinking about resilience, isn't thinking about, I think it might just be a cost-based thing. And that's a risk you want to take as an organization. That's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's your risk. You're deciding what your risk appetite is. What your if something fails, how quickly can we recover it? Can we live with that downtime and the potential loss of data? So if you want to put a single device in, that's perfectly perfectly fine, as long as your business accepts that there's a risk to that. If you want to put a resilient thing and it goes in a cluster, suddenly you're not measuring the individual performance of one box. You need to measure the performance of the cluster, and that's yeah. where the service looking at comes in. So yeah, all the boxes can be running slow, or one box can be running slow, but the service is still working fine. Or all the servers can be working fine, but they're all running really slowly and your actual service delivery is slow. So there's the two different sides to it. So what you're trying to understand is how does that impact the user and how do we resolve that as opposed to how do we just fix, put bigger, more memory in the box? That might fix the problem, but it, the way that you measure and reporting it is different. So that when you change to an experience level agreement approach or the, the customer experience approach doing things, the way that you pay service credits changes, the way that you deliver service changes also allows you to charge for services in different ways. Um, part of ITIL foundation is how you do chargeback a wooden dollars approach, whether you break things by service, whether you pay things. So if you're giving a customer a customer journey with a transaction, you can start to do per transaction charging because you understand that every time a customer comes in, it goes down and for every successful transaction, you can charge 0.001 of a penny, for example, uh, to do that one. If they're making 100,000 transactions a day, there you go, 100,000 times 0001. I'm not doing it now because my, my head's not working. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's your daily revenue. That could maybe covers your support costs and gives you the bits and pieces. There's different ways to skin the cat. Yep. When you understand what your services do, how your customers use those services, how you deliver those services, manage those services, operate those services, design those services, once you have that holistic thinking, then you can really look at some creative ways to drive value and benefit into your organization from those services and also into your customers' organizations. Amazing, amazing. And that's the beauty of ITIL. Once you start down the process, you just keep going. Absolutely. And and I would love to keep going, but unfortunately I think we're running out of time. Um, this has been this has been fantastic. Um, I, I think I think the discussion points were amazing and it's a lot of insight into how ITIL can be used for the cloud. Yeah, I think to a lot of people there's a perception that ITIL is a ritual that's going to basically be slowing everything down. But it's really a framework that you can use to control business outcomes that can be adapted to what you're doing. You can have it be an agile function. It just has to be adapted properly to what you're doing. Uh, but the controls have to be in place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's it. Fundamentally, that is it. ITIL is a guiding principle. It's a framework. You, you adapt it to your need. Exactly. And that's it. Exactly. Yeah. No, nope, makes sense. Makes sense. So I think we've come to our section of the podcast where we talk about your recommendation on books. So Paul, have you got a recommendation or something that you read recently? Something that you that caught your eye that you think is interesting? Oh, um, yeah. Well, obviously there's a variety of of uh, things around ITIL uh, on the web because it's a framework because I think it's created by uh, managed by an organization called Axelos. 
Yep. You can go onto it's A-X-E-L-O-S. You can go onto their um, website and you can download the four best practice books. Um, there are the actual books that go with the courses you can purchase and just buy to read. You don't need to be on a course to do them. They right. are actually quite easy to consume and understand, um, especially in today's world where most people have been around an IT operation for a while uh, and they understand some of the concepts, the terms of languages, you can buy all those. There is a variety of other things around IT service management that you can get from Amazon, which are great books to sort of thing if you want to look at a wider, more holistic view of service management across everything as opposed to just a framework and how those different things tie together. And it also helps to change the way that you think about things. You know, mm-hmm. while it's not 100% prescriptive, it is, um, it's a framework. So it does do quite rigid terminology or quite rigid structure in terms of your change process must have at least have these four or five steps in it, for example. But you want to talk about how we think about things differently. It's how you apply that into your organization may need you to look at the world in a different way. So rather than just reading ITIL books, I recommend you start looking for IT service management books right um, and things like managing change in digital era those kind of anything that talks around did the digitalization of products of services and how you manage and control those changes how you deliver those changes um you know there's all sorts of courses you can get now from universities like a week's course introduction of managing digital change that kind of thing that from all over the place which bring you very least academic thinking and then you can mm-hmm. take that back and say, well, that's what they're looking at here, which means probably in a couple of years' time, this is going to become more mainstream. How do we start to adapt to that now? So, yeah, so one of the, uh, an interesting book that I've read in the past, uh, I'm not sure if it's been fully updated to version four yet, is um, IT Pro- ITSM Process Assessment Supporting ITIL. Um, it's from a company called Van Haren Publishing. Do you put um, links and stuff in text? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So okay. So we'll add, put it, add the link in the in the document. Yeah. Uh, Chris can put it up in the show we'll, notes. We'll put a thing, and this is especially for people that are in an IT organization and looking to modernize and change things. It's quite um, um innovative approach to understanding how your process is working, how you can make changes to those to adapt into a new environment. That's really so cool. So that, that's a good one. Amazing. So uh, to our listeners, we we'll put those links that that Paul mentioned in the in the show notes, and you should you should be able to access those uh, going to the website, which, by the way, is rackspace.com slash cloudspotting, if you haven't uh, already captured it. And you can also reach us on Twitter or if you message us on at spottingclouds. That's our Twitter handle. So, yeah, let us know. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Let us know if you have any questions to Paul or us and if you have any ideas on future episodes that you want to listen on. But I think that comes to an end. And I want to say thank you very much, Paul. And thank you. And thank you for listening.